Would you say a prayer with me as we begin to look at Scripture today? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are so grateful to be in your presence. Thankful that we have the chance to worship here. Lord, as we continue our conversation about our hearts and your heart, we pray that you just continue to speak to us. Um, Whatever fears we have, whatever anxieties we have, we pray that we could just turn those over to you in these few moments out of our week open ourselves up spiritually to what it is you may want to say to us, what you want to bring to our attention. Remind us of your love and your forgiveness, your peace in the midst of crazy times, and help us, God, to trust you more as we worship you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good to see you all. Were you able to talk about your favorite TV shows? I wondered if people could talk about TV shows in, ch- in a church setting because, well, sometimes you meet, maybe you met this person. You met the person who told you about their TV show and kind of wants you to watch their TV show. They're, they're really excited. They're like an evangelist for, for their show. Anybody meet that person? Is anybody that person? Okay, both of those things. Very good. Now, some other of you might have been a little bit shy because... You're not sure if you could tell a person in church the show you really love, right? You're like a little bit on the edge about whether or not, you know, people will think or judge you for watching Real Housewives of Des Moines. Like, that's an edgy show. Have you seen that show? Ryan, you watch Real Housewives of Des Moines, don't you? Yes. You live that. Stacy's not here. Stacy is here. God bless you, sir. Good luck. So one of my favorite shows is Flip or Flop. Anybody watch Flip or Flop? Okay, so it's it's an annoying show on HGTV, uh, which I don't get at my house, so I have to watch it where I'm somewhere else usually. And we were just on vacation for a little while, and in the place where we stayed, there was HGTV for, for free. Just watch as much of it as you want. And so I started watching some Flip or Flop, and I'm sort of like forcing my kids to watch it because I'm really tired of Doc McStuffins. I just can't watch any more Doc McStuffins. And we're, we're, huh? Doc McStuffins fans, I'm sorry, I've offended you. Flip or flop, H-E-T-V. And Michaela starts watching it with me, my seven-year-old daughter, and she starts to get into it. She's kind of starting to like it. And so there was one moment where it was either Doc McStuffins or flip or flop, and she says, Dad, can we watch flip or flop? I said, yes, we can, Absolutely. That's awesome. Okay, so we're watching it, and then she starts asking me these questions, like, uh, you know, how do they pick this house? Or how much, house, how much does that house cost? Or, you know, why in the world would they pick that tile? Or whatever, you know? She's very astute as a seven-year-old. And, and for a while, I'm just really enjoying it because I'm not watching kid programming, and I'm watching something I want to watch, and my kid's enjoying it. So this is the, the, the perfect situation. On the other hand, I started to wonder a little bit, how is watching the show with my daughter, uh, my sons who can kind of care less, shaping what she loves and what she desires? Just just for a minute, no judgment intended, I'm I'm picking on myself for the moment, but like how does watching a show, like a a flip show for a renovation, affect a seven-year-old? Like what messages is she receiving from watching the show with me? So like here's a couple of guesses. So one thing I heard her talk about was 
basically every show they come in and it's a it's a house in a poor condition and what do they do first they just rip everything out they gut the whole thing and then they go to ikea and pick out some cabinets and they get some stone and they you know basically the show's the same over and over and over again with a different house and so one thing she kept saying is like well how come they don't just get rid of all the old stuff right so there's this little subtle message going into a seven-year-old's brain and heart that if it's old, it's bad. And if it's going to be better, it has to be new. Small thing, maybe, but that was something that she picked up. Now, I started to wonder, is she just loving granite countertops? Are you going to say, like, man, I, I don't know how people live without granite countertops because she hears the woman on the, on the TV show say that, you know? Or... You know, she's starting to pick up on the money piece of it, and at the end of the show, they list out, you know, it's always this. We bought it for this amount, we spent this amount, and then this was extra, and then amazingly, shockingly, against all odds, we got more money for it than we thought we were going to get, and we made $50,000, right? Like every month, we made 50, we made 60, we made $4 million, whatever it is. And like slowly she's being, she's putting this together and she's seeing these people on TV who come into houses, got the old, put in the new, and someone hands them a lot of money, right? Like way more money than her $3 allowance can comprehend. Now, small thing maybe, and you might be like, dude, you're way overanalyzing this on vacation. You need to take a break and just enjoy the show, which is probably true. But on the other hand, we've been talking for the last two months about how simple everyday things shape our hearts and shape the things that we want. And for, for certain, for me, having watched these shows for years, I find myself thinking about my house, like, oh, that, you know, that thing could go, and this could be better, and this could, and it's probably fine. Like, it's okay to have two-thirds of your house be wood paneling, isn't it? Anybody else? It's indestructible. It's beautiful. But I find my heart and my desires starting to go towards, you know, what the show is promoting. And now I'm, I'm indoctrinating my seven-year-old to love quartz countertops or whatever as well. Little things over time is what Steph's been preaching about the last couple of weeks that really shape our hearts and our desires to want certain things. And so I was just wondering, as you think about your television shows, you know, how, do the, how does the TV that you watch shape what you, what you want? How does the television that you regularly watch shape what you want? and shape what you love. Uh, how whatever you love is shaping your heart is the most important thing that we're saying God is, is concerned about. What is happening to your heart, to your character, to your core, who you're becoming is the most important thing to God. So how is what you love, whatever it is that you love, shaping your heart and also shaping the hearts of the people around you? Okay? We've been having this conversation. Today, I'm going to take you to two scriptures to kind of answer, try to answer this question. We're going to go to Ezekiel, which we spent some time in last summer, and then we're going to go to Romans and talk a little bit about how the heart is affected by, uh, by the life of Jesus. And so in Ezekiel, here's a little bit of background. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, it'll be in Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28. This background in Ezekiel is really important, I think, because of the ridiculously intense climate that we find ourselves in as people who are living in the United States right now. Uh, we're just after these political conventions. 
uh, things are, just seem crazy to me. There's a lot of division. There's a lot of name-calling. There's a lot of disunity. And we're all trying to figure out how to live in the midst of that. And it's, it's a hard place to be. Uh, Ezekiel is written as an explanation for how God's people lost the land that God gave to them. It's an explanation for how they went from being in the promised land to being exiled and living in Babylon. And these prophets that come up in the scriptures say over and over again, here's a warning, here's a warning, here's a warning, here's a warning, for literally hundreds of years. They're saying, essentially what they're saying is, you're starting to love things that don't have anything to do with God. You're starting to be more concerned about yourself, about your own well-being, about other gods who you think can give you something that you want or that you need, and your heart is being pulled away from God. And so I created this list. So you put that slide up for me. That I think if you looked at Ezekiel kind of across the whole book's long book, um, here's some themes that God is saying through the prophet to other people uh, through a number of pictures and illustrations. He says, you are living in fear of losing what you already have. This is one of the challenges. He's saying violence has become a regular part of your life. He's saying you're keeping up appearances on the outside, but on the inside, you're dying. You're rotting away. He says you're no longer sure where to find God, even if you wanted to find God. He says, you don't see good things naturally coming out of your life. In the natural course of the way you're living your life, you're not seeing good things just coming out without even having to try that hard. You're living in fear. You're, you're immense in violence. You're keeping up appearances. You can't find God, and you don't see just good things naturally appearing in your life. These were the struggles that God was pointing out to these people. And Ezekiel's the book that's written essentially when, when the rubber hits the road, where they ultimately do lose their land, where they're removed from Jerusalem and taken into exile, and the city of Jerusalem is totally destroyed. So here's, here's what God is saying through Ezekiel in chapter 36. God says through Ezekiel, for I will take you out of the nations. He's speaking to them in exile now. I'm going to gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Put that verse up that talks about the heart, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. The people's hearts in the time of the writing of this book were so far away from God 
that God had given up on a renovation of the heart and now just decided on a heart transplant. Things had gotten so bad and people were so far away from God that he decided, you have to have a whole new heart. I am going to put in a new heart. And that new heart and that new spirit is gonna draw you into the way of life that I have decided is best for you. Why did God have to give the Israelites a new heart? He says that their hearts had become hearts of stone. They were unresponsive. That no matter what they heard or what they saw, they were set in the way that they were doing life and they just weren't gonna change. Now, to me, it feels like some of the conversations that take place in, in relationship, in social media, media, whatever, they're kind of like that. Like you have to pick your spot and sort of sink your feet and stay there and resist all oncomers. And I'm concerned. These are people who knew God. These are not people who just had no idea what God's story was. These are people who are descendants of the story of being released from Egypt from being rescued by God in unbelievably miraculous ways and being told, this is who you are. You are my people. Here's our covenant relationship together. Here's the land I have for you. These are not people who are ignorant of who God is. And yet over time, slowly, their hearts have been drawn away from what was most important drawn away by all sorts of desires and loves that took root in their heart to the point where God says, you need a heart transplant. Now, how can that happen? It's really easy to look back in the Bible and kind of judge people and go, man, those people were a mess. How could you not listen to the hundred years of prophetic warnings and do something about it? I try to have, I'm trying to have more sympathy in my reading of the Bible to say, these people are really struggling. They had issues, they had desires. They had all kinds of stuff going on in their families. They had concerns, they had doubts. How can good people who loved God over time become so disconnected with God that they begin to love and prioritize things that are totally different from what God wants for them? How can good people who know God become so disconnected with God's way of life that they almost want nothing to do with the things that God cares about? How does that happen? concerned maybe about having enough. I know one of the things that they were doing is they were worshiping one of the Babylonian gods, or, or one of the, yeah, one of the Babylonian gods that was in charge of bringing the harvest up. And so that when, when the harvest was in and the winter was coming and there was gonna be no more growth, that God required them to, to cry and wail and lament over the loss of, of the growth. And then when the spring came, they had to throw these great big parties to like wake that God up again to get them to bring the new growth in the springtime. And, and the Israelites had decided this, this works. Like if we cry in the fall and we party in the spring, the, 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 uh, the crops will come back. So some of it is just like, how do we pragmatically get things done? How do we get enough food in? Is there, are there shortcuts around only trusting what it is that God has in mind for us that we can take. And they take them, and over time, their hearts go away from God. Now, God says, for God's own reputation, this isn't even for you, he says. It's not even because 
you're, I want to save you, although I do. It's mostly for my own reputation. I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to help make you into people who reflect who I am so the world might know who we are. And that's what happened. God steps in and rescues them and brings them back to their land and gives them a new heart and saves them. Now, hundreds of years later, when the world at large, not just Israel, can't save itself, can't find its way to God, can't learn to love the things that God loves, Jesus enters the story and does the same thing. He enters the story and says, here's what God cares about. Here's what love looks like. Here's what letting go of the idols and the things that are holding you back from what God wants for you. He's how these things can be defeated and released. I would say, I think we desperately at this time, cumulatively, all of us, church people and not church people, we need a new heart right now. Does anyone agree? We need a new way of looking at each other and looking at our lives. The whole world needs a new heart. As I said, we live in a time that, that can be full of fear and division and conflict. We're hearing a lot in the news about safety, about protecting our own interests. We hear that from both sides of the political spectrum. We hear people arguing about who's right, whose views are right or wrong. And we just don't hear a lot about giving ourselves up. We don't hear a lot about the sacrifice of a love defined by Jesus and the cross that looks to others' interests first and considers others' as better than themselves. We don't hear people talking about learning to love their enemies, do we? We don't hear, I don't see people approaching life with humility, and I don't see leaders recognizing our radical dependence upon God as if we couldn't function if God wasn't with us. We need a new heart. And the gospel story that defines our life as people following Jesus needs to be heard right now. It needs to be heard as an alternative way to see the world that's not Democrat, that's not Republican. There's an alternative space to say, here's what it's like to follow Jesus into the world. Here's what it's like to have a heart that mirrors God's heart. Here's what Romans chapter 10 says about what we can do with our hearts. In verse 5. He says, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things, meaning keeps the law, the person who keeps the law will live by the law. But the righteousness that comes by faith, which Paul is trying to convince them of, the righteousness that comes by faith says this, don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Who will go up into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But rather, what does it say? It says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we're proclaiming to you. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, that Jesus' kingdom is coming, and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess, profess your faith and are saved. 
Paul's saying to the, the church in Rome, which is a small church that's struggling to figure out how to live amongst a pluralistic society in the greatest city in the world at the time, and he's contrasting this understanding of being right with God as a person who knows the rules and follows the rules and has all the right opinions with a righteousness or a rightness with God that comes from faith. And the rightness that comes with faith doesn't say, how do we go up and get Jesus and bring him down? Or how do we go down and get Jesus and bring him back? Instead, it says, no, no, no. The message, the presence of God's kingdom is already near you. It's right there among you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's waiting for your response. It doesn't require you to have all the rules right. It doesn't require you to learn all the right opinions and all the right perspectives. It doesn't even require you to be able to argue for your position, right or wrong. It requires you to humbly and softly listen and hear the good news that you can't do it, but God can. That this message is in your heart and in your mouth, and it's waiting for your response. The heart-changing message of love that's displayed through the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is near to every one of us, and it's a gift that's given freely by God to each of us. We don't have to achieve anything to receive that, right? So God's invitation to us is to let our hearts be changed by the love God is offering to us in Jesus. If you believe in your heart that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, you will be saved. Now, we come from all different backgrounds in this church. Some of you had no church background. Some of you had um, a Catholic background, Presbyterian background. Some of you had more evangelical backgrounds. For those of you who had evangelical backgrounds, how many of you learned Romans 10.9 at a young age, right? Yeah, lots of you, almost all of you. I read it this week, and I thought, I asked myself, why, why are we being saved. Why are we saved by believing this in our heart? What does that mean? If it isn't just intellectual assent to thinking this is the right way to understand God, then, then what are we saved from? What's happening in our hearts when we say, we know that Jesus was raised from the dead, and, and that takes a concrete reality in your life. What is happening? How are we being saved? Here are some ideas. I think when our hearts realize that we can't do it on our own, that we can't find the right path, that we can't follow the right rules, that we need God, then we're saved from our own self-reliance. We're saved from thinking that we are, we're going to have to make it happen for ourselves because nobody else is going to. Anybody ever feel like that? I think when our hearts receive a gift that we did nothing to earn, when you, when you not only hear, but experience unconditional love from God, a father figure in your life who says to you, look, I know you, I know everything you've done, everything you've thought, I know everything about your life, and I love you anyway. I love you for the things that you are great at and that you're good at and that, that are so positive about you, and I, I love you despite the foibles and, and failures and sins that exist in your life. I love you no matter what. When you receive that gift and you experience it, then you're saved from self-righteousness. You cannot think you're amazing. You cannot think you deserve God's love once you've really re realized 
what an incredible gift you've received from doing nothing. And when you hear that over and over again, you're rescued over and over again from thinking you can do it and you can be saved by what you do. When our hearts experience love from God that's defined by Jesus giving up his life for each one of us and overcoming death, we're saved from fear. We don't have to be afraid. We're saved from fear of death, from fear of judgment, from fear of not measuring up. Jesus already conquered those fears. And even when we, account, when we encounter them, we can say, no, you don't have any place in my life. Because my heart has already been convinced of God's love for me in Jesus. When our hearts accept God's forgiveness for our sins, we're saved from the burden of those mistakes in our lives. Some of us will walk around our whole life feeling the burden of some things we did wrong that we deeply regret. Some of us are suffering from things that we did that God didn't want us to do, and we don't even realize all the repercussions in our lives from those things. And when Paul says, when you believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, that means all of those sins have already been atoned for and accounted for. And so the burden that we might be carrying doesn't have to be carried anymore. It can be released. One more. When our hearts believe in the way God's story defines life in this world, we're saved from having to define life for ourselves. You don't have to make up a story to give your life meaning. You don't have to spend all your life searching for the story that gives your life meaning. We're saved from having to create an identity for ourselves. God gives us our identity. God gives us our purpose. God calls us by name and says, you are a son or a daughter of the Most High King and I've gifted you with gifts and I've put you in a community and I've given you work to do that's meaningful and purposeful that has to be done. And you're one of us, you're part of our family. That's the story. We're saved from having to write our own story. For it's with your heart that you believe and that you're justified. Something happens, not just in your head, in your heart, in your core, in your gut, at the center place of who you are, that God is calling out to that place and asking you, do you want to receive the love that I have for you or not? Do you want to learn to love the things that I love? Do you want your desires to be shaped by the presence of God's spirit in your life every day so that as you mature as a follower of Christ, more and more you love the things that God loves and naturally out of your life, fruit comes, good things come. You love people well, sometimes without even trying because God's spirit has matured you and worked in you so much that you wanna do the things that God wants you to do. Not just do them out of obligation or duty or to check our church box or our religious box or our Jesus box or whatever other boxes we have. This decision, it comes from your core, from your gut, from your center. And I think God invites every one of us to have a new heart. I'm gonna invite the band to come up as I conclude. In Romans chapter 5, it says that God pours love into our hearts through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the argument that Paul's making here is your desire, your love can be shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, 
God's love comes into your life. You don't have to depend on your own ability to love other folks. God has made a way for us to receive a new heart. God has made it possible for us to love what God loves. God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. At times, when I'm saying these things, which I've heard for almost 40 years, sometimes it sounds to me as I'm listening to myself, like I know that, I've heard that before. And sometimes I worry for myself that I'm not hearing it anymore, that my heart is unresponsive. If anyone sits there and you feel like, man, I've heard this a hundred times, it's really not affecting you anymore. That's a condition of the heart. And so for us and for the people who live around us who are not Christians, we have to ask ourselves, are we slipping? Are we moving away from the things that God loves? Or are we moving towards those things? And if you can share a story today on your way out, instead of only talking about where you're going to have lunch, which is very important. If you can share a story to say, you know what, five years ago, I couldn't have cared less about this thing or these people. And because God's in my life, now I do. Because I know you all have those stories. But if you sit here and you're on the other end of the spectrum and you feel like, I've heard this a million times and it frankly just doesn't matter to me anymore. It just sounds like church language then reach out to somebody and explore why that is. It's an indication of where your heart is, where my heart is, where our hearts are. The greatest story ever told is that God has made a way for us to be loved and redeemed and forgiven and restored and participants in God's kingdom. We come together on Sundays to celebrate what God has done for us. And so I asked Stefan and the rest of the people who are up here today, to throw us a dance party. Those were my instructions. Do your best to throw us a dance party as part of the musical worship this week. And so that's what they're trying to do. And for some of us at Mill City, that's a very uncomfortable thing. We don't, we don't really do that. Um, but this group of people have prepared these last three songs, and they're expecting a dance party. So now it's kind of on you guys, right? Can we respond and say, this news is amazing? In the midst of whatever chaos we live in, God has done it for us. God has given us a new heart. God has reached out to us and loved us and restored us and sent us back into the world. Let me pray and then let's stand and sing. Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful that you're reaching out to us. We don't ever want to take for granted what you've done for us. And so we offer this worship to you because we know how much it costs you to wipe sin off the face of the earth, to defeat death and to offer it back to us freely and to invite us into something that we could have never imagined on our own. We celebrate that God and we thank you for your sacrifice. Jesus, you are Lord, you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You sit at the right hand of the Father. You are always interceding for us. You were there when the world was created you will be there when it is recreated. Everything good comes from you. You knit each one of us together in our mother's womb, whether we're three weeks old or a hundred years old. We are your children. And we hear you today. And we pray against the spirit of fear and the spirit of self-reliance. God, the spirit of self-righteousness, the spirit of pride. 
We come before you humbly as people in need of a Savior. We receive the gift that you've offered to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.